everyone, and welcome to the show. I'm Martin Willis, your host. I'm really excited about tonight. We have the one and only Jacques Vallée on tonight, and he'll be talking about his uh, his le- latest book. It's called uh, Trinity, the Best Kept Secret. And I actually had no idea that there was a supposed UFO crash in 1945. You know, you always think of the modern UFO era as starting in 1947. So this is really fascinating. I started reading the book and uh, it's really, really good. And just the forward in the book, I thought was very well written as well. Uh, Tomorrow night, uh, we have, we're going to be right here on YouTube and Facebook um, with the Everything Else show that will be with Nick Redfern. He has uh, thoughts on the possibility of how the pyramids were built. Um, He's a prolific writer. Uh, He's written so many books and this one is on that uh, theory, his idea on that. Just a few things. Um, we have a lot of things coming up I'm pretty excited about. First of all, on October 3rd, um, I'll be up in Nova Scotia at Shag Harbor at the conference up there. I'm going to be one of the speakers up there. I'm pretty excited about that. And uh, recently, I'm honored that the producers of the Ariel Phenomenon asked Randall Nickerson um, who he would want at a live premiere, a uh, theater premiere of the movie coming out. Um, that's October 8th. And he said, I'll only have one person and that's Martin Willis. So I'm very honored that uh, I'm going to be there live. It's going to be October 8th, which is a Saturday evening. So it'll be a different night. Um, I won't be on KGRA radio, but I will be on YouTube, Facebook and all that. And of course, it'll go out as a podcast. So there's going to be um, a lot of very interesting people there. It should be a lot of fun. And uh, uh, there's some people that are flying out. Uh, I know, for instance, that uh, Selma Siddick is flying out and maybe some other people and they'll join us. So that should be a lot of fun. I'm really looking forward to things coming up. Uh, The second week in October, I will be out in Phoenix, Arizona at the International UFO Congress. And if you plan on attending and you're going to be out there, I'm going to try to do a live roundtable out there like I usually do. And uh, just throw me an email at Martin Willis at, I'm sorry, Martin at podcastufo.com. And uh, I will, uh, we'll make arrangements and we'll get together and it should be a lot of fun. So without any further delay, I'm bringing in Jacques. Welcome to the show, Jacques. Thank you. Uh, Delighted to be here again. Yeah, that's right. It was, uh, I think it was about three years ago, last time we spoke. Uh, Always a pleasure. What has happened in three years? Oh my goodness, hasn't it? Yeah, especially lately. I mean, it just seems like a, like the snowball going down the hill in the UFO world. It's it's really great. And that must be really um, something for you to see since you've been at this for such a long time, um, to see all the changes and the fact that science may t- take this a little more seriously than they ever did. Yes, and it's a, it's a profound feeling when I think of all the pioneers in this research who were my mentors, like Dr. Heineck and, and Amy Michel and many others, uh, who are not alive now to see uh, the time when the stigma is removed. I mean, now, yeah, now yeah. this is a, uh, the, the subject is accepted in polite company, which it wasn't, um, you know, just three years ago. So I'm gratified to have lived long enough to to see this and to help um, participate in this. With, uh, but uh, there is a lot of work to do. And uh, as, as you know, I, I'm doing, right now I'm really doing three things to try to help. Some of it is uh, uh, publishing the data we have on materials and um, I've been doing most of that with uh, Dr. Nolan at Stanford, Dr. Gary Nolan. Um, and uh, we, have, as you may know, we have published the first uh, paper, which is really the first fully reviewed scientific paper on um, uh, UFO materials and UFOs as, as physics, accepted in a prime uh, journal, international journal. Uh, so we, we hope that this is going to open uh, an avenue, a boulevard for other people, for our colleagues to be able to publish now. 
because we, we've sort of broken the, the log jam. And right. um, the, uh, the other thing that I'm uh, still doing is, uh, of course, working with the, the CNES in France, the, the center, you know, the French Center for Space Studies has had a, an investigation, a small, small project, but very active in France for a long time, for over 30 years. And um, so I'm participating in, in their work. And uh, there were, as you know, a lot of uh, uh, cases, classic cases in France, like the Valençor uh, case, for example, uh, that, uh, that are in their files. And, where we continue to do to the research on cases there. Um, the another thing that I've done is, of course, to be part of the the project initiated by Mr. Bigelow, by Robert Bigelow, um, that became uh, known as BAS, Bigelow Aerospace uh, Space Studies, and um, there is a lot of confusion about what we did, um, but I'm, I'm hoping that eventually what we published, uh, what we, we gave to the, the sponsor will be published and will be, will be accessible because there was a lot, of, a lot of good work done there that people don't know about. And all the quarrels and all the discussions have been on uh, relatively, you know, small things and the main contribution hasn't been fully realized so the main contribution of that project uh, it's a pity that the project was stopped after two years but maybe other people can pick up what we did and carry it further mm. part of what we did was to build the and that's something i'm very proud of because i was the, the designer of the project and the manager uh, of the project at the beginning is the largest database, actually a data warehouse of a number of databases from all over the world that is now uh, uh, at, at a single structural level and available for AI. We, we had designed the AI component and have not had time to uh, really exercise it, but this was Probably, and as you know, part of that is still classified, but this is probably the largest uh, activity that um, the project was involved in. And I'm, I'm hoping that this will see the light of day sometime because it can be used by, uh, by other groups within the government and eventually by, you know, by other research groups if, uh, if, uh, if it's allowed. So this is really what I've been what I've been doing, and it's coming to light uh, little by little. And mm -hmm. of course, you know the investigation um, with Paula Harris at uh, Trinity, and we just published the the new edition of it because we we found new witnesses, and mm. we we've been able to extend. The, the investigation uh, into uh, more of the details of what really happened there and what happened after the initial incident. Wow, that that is, you know, it often happens when something comes out and then the word gets out there and that happens like with any type of film or anything on any type of case and all of a sudden all these people feel you know, uh, like they can come forward and talk about their experience. And that's, that happened with the Pascagoula case recently. Someone had came forward and that was, I believe that was all the way back in 1973, something like that. Yes. I, I never stop working on, on a case if it's a primary case, exactly for what, what you said, that uh, new items uh, come up. But in, in the case of Trinity, it's a little bit special because the witnesses never spoke for 60 years. Right. They were for two reasons. One is that they, they felt that what they had seen was very personal, 
was very intimate for them. The, the other thing is that they grew up, remember they were kids at the time, they grew up in the environment of World War II, where if you saw something, you didn't talk about it. Right. And if, but if you saw a crash or if you saw an accident and you were the first there, you had to bring help to the pilot or to, to the people who were involved. And that's, that's what, uh, what happened to them when that very strange object crashed on their land. And many people have trouble, you know, in the first edition, and, and maybe it's my fault, um, uh, you know, Paola had gathered all that information and so on. And when I wrote the book and when I started working with her, I worked primarily with the data from the two kids. And people, you know, well-intentioned critics, um, I will, I will uh, assume that they are well-intentioned, said, look at this, you know, a seven-year-old and a nine-year-old, what do they know, you know, about aerodynamics and about all this? They probably saw something strange and they made up the story. Well, those two kids were very bright. The reason they were there tending the ranch was that this was uh, actually it happened just one month after the explosion of the bomb, the first bomb, you know, at uh, White Sands at Trinity, at the Trinity site, which was still at that point completely secret. And the, of course, the bomb wasn't secret anymore. Um, Japan had just surrendered, but all the fighting people were still in uniform. They were Americans were scattered, you know, all over the Pacific or over Europe and so on. Um, people had not come home yet, had not been demilitarized. So, they, it, you know, the kids were running a lot of things. And those two kids were taking care of the ranch, taking care of the cattle. They had binoculars to, to track, you know, the the cows to read the brands and so on to make sure no uh, animal had been stolen. They were there on that particular day because our cow, one of the cows was going to have a calf and they wanted to make sure that both the, the calf and the mother were okay and they had to report that to their father. So they are there with their horses. It's a very large ranch that by now I know I know very well. Uh, that research was initiated again by, by Paola when she, by accident, she read um, a, an article in a small local paper uh, and she contacted, she contacted the people when uh, just about 10 years ago when they came out with the story. They had been silent since 1945. So this resets the, the, the start of really the, the modern era of UFOs two years before Roswell. Now, two years before Roswell, there was no Air Force. There were airplanes and there were pilots, but it was the Army Air Force. They were Army uniforms uh, and Army, Army equipment. Mm -hmm. uh, there were no flying saucers. The term did not exist. You know, Kenneth Arnold is going to invent the term two years from now. Okay. And uh, so, uh, there was no framework for what they saw. Also, what they saw was not a disc. It was not a saucer. It was, they called it an avocado, of course. Yeah, I, that was something. Everybody, everybody in New Mexico spoke English and Spanish. <clears throat> and they, these two kids grew up in, uh, in Spanish-speaking families. So um, it's been a fascinating study, and it's not over because we found new witnesses, and that's what the new edition of the book is, is all about. Excellent. And when these people come forward, I mean, that's a, that's a long time, 60 years. Um, did any of them make any records or drawings or anything like that, you know, uh, contemporary with the sighting? Yes, and the, we, uh, I asked... Um, Jose Padilla to draw it again for me, and uh, the, the, his drawing is in is in the book. They uh, the main thing they did was to measure it very carefully. The thing was very large; it was the size of two trucks, 
to uh, Ford 150s put together, but it was 15 feet high. Hmm. So, you know, the, the idea that this was contrived as a hoax, um, which is, an, of course, an idea we consider, uh, doesn't, doesn't really hold water. And it, it doesn't hold water for other reasons that are even more important. But um, we argued uh, with Paola about ways in which we could find out what the weight was. And we could, in fact, get an estimate of the weight from the equipment that the army brought to the site, which was, um, you know, a, a very large truck with a platform, the kind of truck uh, platform is called a low boy. And that's a kind of army truck that carries two tanks. Yeah. So they wow. knew they had an idea of the weight of that thing. They also brought a special crane to lift it and to put it sideways on the platform of a truck because if they put it upright, it was X-shaped, but if they put it uh, in the, the, long, the long diameter, it couldn't pass under the bridge on the highway. Hmm. Okay? So um, that's when the kids had the opportunity to look at the underside of the object and realized it had no visible means of propulsion. Hmm. Now, when they saw the object crash, it hit a communication tower. And this is where I've put the emphasis in on the new edition. The first witness is not the kids. The first witness is a bomber pilot, very experienced bomber pilot, named Brody, B-R-O-T-H-Y, who was coming in for, for a landing with a bomber, a B-25, uh, two-engine bomber. Uh, the bombers had bombed... Uh, uh, Japan during the war, not not the ones who dropped the, the bomb, but the ones who were used during the at the beginning of the war. And uh, he comes in for a landing at Alamogordo. Alamogordo Tower asked him to look at the communication tower, which is sitting on that ranch, on the Padilla, uh, on the Padilla Ranch, and because they've lost communication with it. That tower is one of three towers that direct airplanes, including civilian airplanes, around White Sand. And they've lost communication with it. So he circles that tower, sees that the tower has been hit by something. The tower is bent. He reports that. And then he reports that he sees smoke, that the vegetation is on fire, and there is an egg-shaped object that has, quote, crashed in the in the underbrush, which there is mostly uh, cactus and small palm trees and so on. And he sees two kids. So he places the kids at the site in his report to Alamogo. So this is very different from Roswell. I mean, Roswell is very important, of course. In fact, this validates Roswell. But Roswell is two years later at Roswell. There is no witness. There is a, a big thunderstorm. Something crashes on the ranch. Hmm. The, the military is uh, alerted. They, looked for, they look for it. And then a, a rancher rides out to, you know, to that property and finds a debris the next day or the day after. Okay? Uh, here we have the witnesses there watching the thing fall. Um, the, the, the pilot lands at Alamogordo. The two kids go to see if they can help because that's, you know, I've had, to, to, to me, the, the whole investigation has been, you know, somewhat emotional because it has made me realize what the Second World War, you know, was from the United States point of view. I, I know it very well from the French point of view because I was born in 1939, the first year of the war. Uh, by the end of the war in 45, I was old enough to understand what was going on and to see you know, German batteries you know, uh, shooting down American planes. Okay. I could see the planes fall. I could see the parachutes and I could see the uh, you know, the pilots being shot 
in the air uh, on the parachutes and so on. There was no place to hide where I was. And um, so seeing the, the sequelae of the war and learning about what happened in 1945 in New Mexico uh, at White Sands, when all these geniuses in physics, and I, you know, I've read, I've, I've learned what they, what they did uh, in, you know, in my training in science. I mean, um, you know, Enrico Fermi, Oppenheimer, all these people are, you know, legends in, in physics, in American physics, in world physics. So uh, to be able to go to the place where they had lunch when they were preparing the bomb and to be, to be able to visit the site, you know, was, was an incredible experience. Hmm. So this is real. This is not a joke. This is not two kids dreaming. Uh, the two kids did actually a very good job of describing the object, measuring it. They actually paced it uh, when the, the, the soldiers were, you know, out having lunch at the local, uh, the little uh, local eating place. They, they took every opportunity to look at the craft. The, the father of Mr. Padilla, Faustino Padilla, went inside, guided by the kids, with a state, uh, state um, officer. Um, when they came out, they set the kids down and they said, nobody talks about this. This is not for us. This doesn't belong, you know, it fell on our property. It fell on the ranch, but this is, this stays within our family. You don't talk in class, you don't talk to your buddies. You know, this is serious, this is for the army to do something about. The next day, uh, an army officer comes to the home of Mr. Padilla and says, uh, Senor, and of course they speak in Spanish, um, most of the people there, you know, spoke indifferently Spanish or English, but their mother language was usually Spanish. So the, the officer speaks in Spanish to the father and says, we are going to need to cut your fence. The father says, there is an opening in my fence. I mean, that's where there's the cattle truck, you know, goes in and out when we take the cows out. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the officer says, it's not big enough for the truck we're going to bring, but we're going to give you a nice, you know, nice barrier. We'll, we'll, we'll do it. It will be really clean and we'll bring a, a tractor to uh, build a new road to where that thing fell because the, the object didn't just crash. This is not, it's a, if you want to call it a crash, uh, call it a controlled crash. Hmm. It it hit the tower. It kept it kept its integrity, so it was still X shaped, and so it lost one panel, uh, one apparently metallic panel, but it it then uh, landed and it dug a an avenue, uh, a, a boulevard down the hill. Uh, digging it up by about six inches of, of dirt mm. as it plowed down the hill for about half a mile. Wow. And then it stopped and made a turn, apparently under power. So this is not a crash. You know, an airplane hitting that tower, and, you know, you can see, see the, the traces of the tower. It's a gigantic tower. Uh, an airplane would have broken up into little pieces. Mm. That thing kept going, and it stopped apparently under control. Um, so now the army has to bring a truck. They come in first with jeeps just to clean up the, the bushes and so on and pick up loose pieces. Unfortunately, because we'd like, we'd like to find some and mm -hmm. analyze them. But um, it, uh, uh, at, after they build the gate, they bring in you know, an 18-wheeler with a low boy that could carry two tanks and they bring a crane. So that tells you that this is not a plywood little balloon that somebody built as a joke. 
Uh, I don't think anybody was joking, you know, around the Trinity site one month after the first nuclear explosion. Right, right, exactly. When you're talking about how far that that trench went, it does sound like something that weighed, weighed a great deal and had quite a velocity to uh, make that type of uh, gouge in the earth like that. Uh, one of the things that comes to mind, though, is they loaded this thing up they put it somewhere and what would you be your best guess where it would be? And do you think it still exists today somewhere? Well, um, all I can do is, is guess because the other side of the story is, you know, there has been no official record of this mm -hmm. that has been published. Mm -hmm. So the, the reason the, the question is where would they, how and, and, and where would they have taken it? Well, it's now on the low boy. Um, the the soldiers have done their job. They go have you know a final meal at the local local little restaurant, which is about five five or ten miles away. Uh, they come back. They take the truck and they drive to Trinity. Um, we know that because that's what the reason they put. The object on the side, so they could go under the uh, under the overpass and then on the way to the Trinity site, which is the most logical thing, because the soldiers who were there were, you know, young kids, 18 or 20 year olds, who probably had not been at at the front, um, and they were there guard, just guarding the Trinity site, but they had no business after they recovered the thing. They had no business dealing with it. So the, the the truck goes to Trinity. It wouldn't stay there because there's nothing there for to study it. It would probably have been taken to Los Alamos. Hmm. And for all I know, it may still be there. Um, that would be the place to take it because they would have, it would have been immediately brought to the attention of the, the physics labs and the you know, the biological labs at, at Los Alamos uh, that were equipped to, to deal with, you know, pretty much anything uh, mm -hmm. in, in physics that could uh, come to their attention. From Los Alamos, uh, we, don't, we really don't know where it, it, if it was broken apart, and, you know, taken to different labs. Uh, in, in my own career in, in science and in investment, I've met a number of people, uh, you know, uh, some um, leading engineers at IBM who told me that they had been asked to, and this is, this would have been in the 60s and 70s, had been asked to look at, at samples, at residues of metal and so on. So we know some of it would have gone to IBM, certainly to Lockheed, probably to Battelle, and then, you know, some of the leading companies where the, the government had secure facilities and secure contracts with, with scientists, or, you know, eminent scientists in their own world who could look at. The, uh, the IBM chief scientist, uh, and he was a, one of the leading, he's dead now, so I can, I can talk about that conversation, but he was really one of the leading uh, physicists who gave us magnetic memory. IBM was the leader in magnetic memory for many, many years, mm. revolutionized the computer science field with magnetic memory. And he would have been, uh, he was an extraordinary researcher and inventor he would have been the logical person to look at some of the materials. The material from Trinity, we just don't know where it would have gone, but one of the kids, the seven-year-old, when he grew up, uh, moved to Washington State and became involved in politics in, in Washington State and um, was, um, was, was involved in... Uh, the, the 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 politics there at a time when the governor Dixie Lee Ray 
uh, was running for re-election or for election. Dixie Ray, as you may know, was a, herself was a physicist. She became the director um, of the Atomic Energy Commission. And um, she had a file about the case. And she, since she had worked closely with uh, Remy, Remy Baca, who was the, the, the kid, the seven-year-old kid, uh, I, I find it hard to think of these two witnesses as kids. Uh, mm -hmm. the, sure. Because I, you know, I've I, uh, interacted with what they did as, as old men. And again, they hadn't spoken for 60 years. Uh, so all this came out when they were, you know, they, they, they were uh, older men. Uh, she uh, went to a safe and showed him the report about the, uh, the Trinity case. So mm -hmm. he was able to get some comfort that, you know, the the thing had been taken care of, the thing was, but it was classified. We also know from a completely unrelated case, in 1952, as you know, the literature, the UFO literature is, is very clear, in 1952, there was a big wave mm -hmm. of um, aircraft that were, or, or spacecraft or UFOs, that were intercepted over Washington, including right, right. over the Pentagon and so on, were intercepted by uh, Navy fighters and by Air Force fighters. What isn't really known, and I don't know why, because I, I know it, uh, I found it somewhere, is that one of the fighters was allowed to shoot at a time when the one of these objects, they were disks actually, flew in the direction of the White House, all the you know, secure space over Washington. Um, and uh, he shot off a piece of it. So where it fell, uh, it was searched for and the piece was recovered. Part of it was turned over to the Canadian project, uh, Canadian UFO research project, which was an official government research uh, study, and the officer who took it there and gave it to the director said that in the United States, that subject of recovery of materials from UFOs was classified higher than the atom bomb. Mm. And this was, and he stated that in a in an interview to to journalists in Canada. So that is again part of the record. So this is not something that anybody has invented. This is part of the record. So that would explain why, uh, number one, the kids never spoke. Number two, the uh, Atomic Energy Commission never spoke either hmm. because it would be, still would be classified in a part of a classification system that most people with security clearances have no access to namely the atomic secrets. The atomic secrets are managed in our country in a separate branch of the, the secrecy you know, apparatus, the secrecy system, uh, the you know, uh, confidential secret, top secret, uh, SAP and all that is, is one type of secret that's within the executive branch and primarily to the Pentagon that other you know, other departments as well. Then there is a separate system for the State Department, which is referring intelligence secrets that don't really need to go to the president unless there is a specific reason for it, but they are segregated for good reasons. And then the atomic secrets are RP and Q secrets for which most people with the top secret clearance in the Pentagon don't have don't need to have that particular clearance. So um, many of the people I've met in the course of the ATIP BAS project, you know, all of us had uh, secrets for the time of the study. 
but all the people I spoke there, including people who had high clearances, had never heard of Trinity because they they didn't have access to the they didn't have a need to know in the nuclear area. Right. Well, you you must be a little bit encouraged by well the mandate for next year for the uh, I'm trying to remember what the new the new acronym is for the uh, government. Uh, uh, let's, let's say, yeah. But uh, but you must be encouraged because they're now going to look into historical cases, which is very encouraging. Because I, I'm, you, yes, and I'm ready and, and willing to assist to any sources that I have I have access to. Um, again, uh, a, a number of us, as you know, in in the UFO community, have done uh, research that went into these these databases. Uh, you know, organizations like Newform have done that for a long time. Uh, I think many of the throwing files, you know, would be available uh, if they care to to look at throwing data. And uh, you know, I, I'm I'm very encouraged that the, certainly that the stigma has been removed. Yes. Hmm. Um, so, so along that line, someone is asking here, there's people putting in questions in chat. I'll try to get to them, a couple of them here. And someone want me to ask you if you had secrets you can't talk about. <laughs> well, um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, uh, that's clear. Uh, I'm, I, I, I cannot, I'm at the end of a project like Bass, or, which was right. called ATIP, ATIP was just a nickname. Mm-hmm. But essentially, the, the you know the project we did in in Las Vegas, uh, run by uh, Mr. Bigelow and, uh, and a small group, uh, that, to my knowledge, has remained classified, except for a few a few things that are, have been published under after review uh, by uh, Dr. Colm Keller, you know the the book mm-hmm. about. The, the Pentagon, uh, you know, and uh, the um, uh, the 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 rest of it is still classified, including the the database for which I was the architect. Um, the I'm hoping that eventually that will see the light of day. Uh, I think it's uh, uh, certainly the largest. There are 260,000 cases from all over the world wow. that came in part from my own old files from France and South America and other places that uh, that I brought into the project. And I still have those. So, I mean, some of the data has come from the outside, from the civilian, uh, civilian files. And some of it was developed internally by the project itself. So that um, you know some of it some of the the computer science data about the architecture is is still classified but um, we never had the chance to get into what I really wanted to do which was the AI development on top of the data warehouse it, it, it's not one file uh, you cannot do it as one file because the the characteristics of every environment are different. You know, the, the, the ratio of explainable cases against truly unknown cases is going to be different if you're talking about pilots uh, or if you're talking about civilians or if you're talking about instruments and so on. So those have to be kept in stovepipes that are parallel. And then there is a structure I design that carries across all the stovepipes on which we could, you know, eventually the project was to first uh, analyze everything to to clean up the entire database, because right now it's compromised with things that are errors. And we, we know that. We know that more than half of the data that is reported is an error. It could be the moon rising through the fog, or it could be you know, a very high altitude aircraft that that's mistaken for UFO and so on. So 
those uh, those are still there, and you know it's a very painstaking job to um, clean up those data the data warehouse, and then only then can you build a decent level of AI on top of it, which is what what our team was ready to do. But the as you know the project stopped after two years, so that resource which is really a you know uh, uh, an american treasure uh developed by something like 25 or 30 people you know it's not a small project over two years mm. so there is at least 60 million years of work that has gone into that um and uh you know i i assume it's preserved and is there may be some work on ongoing from other contractors of the of the defense department that I'm not privy to. But beyond that, I cannot talk about exactly what we did. But if I did, it would be very boring. You know, I mean, there was no, you know, we didn't capture any live alien if that's what what your listener wants to know. Yeah. Well, you know, it is. You think about it, it's kind of a shame that you, you use the term a couple of times, we'll never see the light of day or may see the light of day. And that makes me think of all the way back to this avocado-shaped crash in 1945 um, and all these supposed crash, if if they do exist, and it's being kind of held away from humanity, you know, top secret, yes, but still it's like uh, these treasures are being... You know, concealed, and I, I don't think it does anyone any any good. Well, yes, but um, that's where the power of the computer comes in. As you know, I'm by training and my early career is in computer science mm-hmm. and AI. So you start looking for correlations. And um, what is striking to me about the Trinity case, and I'll, I'll try to show this to you from the book. There are two other cases that are like the Trinity case. There is a a case in Valençon in France where the object was egg-shaped. And there were two short creatures. And uh, there is, of course, a Socorro case, which is also not a disc, but it is um, an egg-shaped object, an oval object. And as you can see there, in, 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 in the book, in, in the Trinity book, the, um, the not only is the shape similar, but the occupants are similar as well. Now, in the case of Trinity, the two kids, so they come close to try to help what they think are the pilots. Mm-hmm. There is no pilot. There are three short creatures that are the, about the size of the kids. They are about, you know, three feet tall. They breathe our air. They have two eyes, the small nose, the small mouth. Um, so they they look a little bit like insects. They look a little bit like, you know, what Whitley Strieber describes in his book. Um, but they are dwarf size, and they breathe our air. They seem to be in great trauma. They move around. The next day, they are not there. We don't know if they escape during the night or if, you know, the, the, there was a report to Alamogordo. So maybe they sent a couple of guys with a jeep to find out what was going on. They may have captured the beings. We, we never see them again. The, the, the two kids are going to be there for the next 10 days following the recovery. They hide in the bushes. It's fascinating for them. I mean, remember when you were a nine-year-old, wouldn't you have been fascinated to see something like that happen on your land? So uh, they are watching this, but there is no no more uh, mention of uh, the entities or the aliens, if you want to call them aliens except in an unrelated or in maybe in a related case in the neighborhood later on. But but as far as the site itself, we never see them again. But in uh, Socorro, which is a case I know well, 
because I, I worked on it <coughs> with Dr. Heineck at the time. Uh, there were, as you know, there were two entities. There were mm -hmm. two small dwarfs, about three feet high, uh, who were breathing our air. And they look at Lonnie Zamora, and then they re-enter the thing, and the thing takes off. Okay? And material, various material is recovered. And I go into, I, I, I've updated that case in Trinity, because you, in the, you were talking about, you know, you should never give up on a case. You should always look for new things that happen. Well, new things have happened. In fact, in the case of Socorro, new things have come to light that had never been published before. And we know it was not a hoax. Uh, we know it was not a joke. Uh, we know that materials were recovered and materials were, in fact, kept secretly and hidden away. So, and then there is a Valençal case. I've, I've gone to Valençal. I've met the witness. What we remember is a French farmer in the Midi of the south of France. He goes into his field because this is in July 1965. It's going to be very hot during the day. If you've been in the south of France, you know, you know, in the summer, it's very, very hot. And so he, he wants to uh, water, you know, his field and he wants to do some work before it gets too hot. He gets there and he sees this oval object that he thinks from a distance is a some sort of helicopter of the French army. And he's going to tell them, you know, in no, no uncertain words that they, they are not allowed to, you know, to land in a private field where something is being grown. Uh, and then when, as he comes closer, two things happen. First, he realizes that they are dwarf, you know, that the thing is not a helicopter that it, it's resting on, on four legs uh, and the two entities, the two uh, pilots are human looking, they are dwarf and they breathe our air. So you have three cases. Now you can argue about Trinity because, you know, Paula and I are the, the ones who brought the case. By the way, it had been researched before by a couple of other ufologists in the U.S., but we were the first ones to document the whole case. And first, Paola, and she brought me in for the the assessment of the traces and everything else. The um, so that you know that that case is comes from our research, but the other two cases are verified by state and military authorities in both cases. You know, in Socorro, there was White Sands, there was the, the local police, there was the FBI, which happened to be there on a completely unrelated thing, but the FBI helped in securing the data. And then there was the Air Force. There were several levels of the Air Force, and of course, Dr. Heineck himself went there. So. The, there was a complete investigation by different agencies. This is not, you know, in the files of some amateur group, you know, uh, not to mean that amateur groups cannot do a good study. But here you have three complementary studies by agencies of the U.S. government or by local, you know, state government. In uh, Valençal, there were five agencies of the French government that investigated the case separately. You know, the police, the Air Force, uh, the uh, French intelligence, and even the French customs. So I asked, why the customs? And I learned something very interesting, that that area was often used by helicopters that were doing illegal traffic with Switzerland. If you want to take all your gold, I assume you have lots of gold that you're hiding, Oh, yes. You take it to Switzerland, like I do. So if you want to take it to Switzerland, uh, and you're French, you hire a helicopter that can take it to a bank over there. Of course, that doesn't work anymore because the Swiss have, you know, shut down that traffic. But in those days, 1965, 
you know, the customs were chasing those illegal, you know, transfers of currency or documents or, or anything else. So they had, in fact, they had authority to, to investigate and they took one look at the data and they, they could see that it was no, no helicopter anybody has ever built. For one thing, the, the witness described it, described it to me when I, I followed the investigation and met a number of other people in the area who knew about those cases. He said it took off and then it, it went up and it vanished. It didn't just go off in the distance in the sky. It just went over 50 feet, you know, in the air and vanished. So, so much for all the theories about, you know, um, special propulsion and so on. And the propulsion must be very special because in the Trinity case, on the last day when the object was on the side, the two kids thought, hey, you know, that's the opportunity to find out what makes it work. So they see the underside. The underside is, and remember, um, Mr. Padilla, Jose Padilla, went inside the object at, at the end. And I asked him what the floor was like. Well, the floor was flat. The floor was flat. There was an area maybe two or three feet under the floor where an engine could have been. But there was no opening under, under the uh, avocado. You know, it was smooth. There were a, a couple of metal bumps, but there was no opening. There was no jet. There was no propeller. There was nothing else. Amazing. I hate I hate to do this, but we are right at the end of the hour and we have there's another show coming right up. So, uh, yeah, hold your book up, if you would, for everyone. And the name of it is Trinity, the best kept secret. Jacques, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. And it says here, meticulous research reveals how alien technology has been concealed. OK, because Excellent. now we know something we didn't know you know, a couple of years ago that this was, in fact, technology. It was deliberately consumed. Very good. Thank you so much. And that link is right in the show notes and on the website. Thank you. You need to take care now. Okay. All right. All right, everyone. So that's it for the show. Thank you so much. And again, that book is right on the website. And my website's down right now. I'm going to look into that. But thank you all uh, for listening and watching. And we'll be back next week. And remember to keep your eyes to the sky.